0: My name is Shane Lewis, and you are listening to Forever On My Mind, blues songwriting in the 1960s, an independent study podcast from the College of Worcester. I vividly remember two years ago, during the fall of 2020, sitting in my dorm room on a cold, lonely October night in Ohio. This was one of the hardest times to be a college student, primarily because of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was isolating, scary, and for many days, quite depressing. While the rain poured outside, I was scrolling through my saved albums on Spotify, trying to find something to listen to. At the time, I was really into the post-apocalyptic video game Fallout New Vegas, and I loved listening to old blues recordings while playing this game, as it fit the lonely, desolate atmosphere perfectly. I remember I saved an album that was recorded by an old preacher from Mississippi. I put the album on in the background, thinking nothing of it. A couple of songs into the album, I closed Fallout and just listened to the album without distraction. I was amazed by the scratchy guitars, passionately booming vocals, and intensely grim themes in the songs, such as death, grief, hard labor, spiritual struggle, or leaving a loved one. When the album ended, I started researching this musician, and it was from that day forward that I became obsessed with the elusive former preacher, twice-convicted murderer, and self-proclaimed father of the blues, Sunhouse. Eddie James House Jr., given the nickname Son because of his father having the same name, was born into a life that seemed at first to lead to anything but a blues career. He was born in a small town in Mississippi named Lyon, just north of Clarksdale on March 21st, 1902. His father was a Baptist deacon who loved playing horns in a big band. House's father went back and forth between being involved in the church and pursuing a career in music, which coincided with his intense alcoholic habits. House, however, was extremely religious when he was young, and believed in the church deeply. For a good part of his youth, Sunhouse House detested quote-unquote bluesmen and their guitar playing. At this time in the early 20th century, the blues was associated with partying, womanizing, excessive alcohol consumption, dancing, and venues known as juke joints, or barrel houses. These types of venues were frequented by gamblers heavy drinkers and sex workers and the entertainment of the night was typically provided by blues musicians as well the religious justification for hating the blues was grounded in the fact that it was often associated with the devil this came from infamous legends such as the guitarist robert johnson who supposedly sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads of a railroad track of which johnson proudly accounts in his most famous song crossroad blues by the time he was around 15 years old House moved with his family to New Orleans and was a full-time practicing preacher. Not only did his career line up with his religious values, but he was also getting paid well. As a preacher, however, he started to struggle with something. The concept of getting religion. The way that Daniel E. Beaumont, a biographer of Sun House, describes, quote, getting religion, unquote, is as follows. To get religion meant in this community an intense personal experience that showed that one was saved. This experience was extremely mysterious to a young Sun House, and he yearned for it deeply. For the rest of his teen years and his early 20s, House worked odd jobs in the New Orleans area and preached on the side. Eventually, he and his family would return to the Clarksdale, Mississippi area, where he would finally get religion while working in the fields as a farmer. And although House had been preaching for a few years, getting religion was the final criteria for him to finally be a registered priest. His career in preaching was short-lived. By 1927, House was completely disillusioned with religious practice entirely and turned to the lifestyle of the bluesman but without playing the blues, excessive drinking and womanizing as much as he could. This same year, House was walking around Mattson, Mississippi when he saw a crowd gathering together. As he approached the crowd, he heard the sound of a broken glass bottle scraping against the metal strings of what seemed to be a guitar. This time, House did not feel the sense of anger and shame that he felt towards this kind of music. Instead, he was drawn to it. Soon afterwards, House bought his first guitar and would start his journey into the Delta Blues. After a few years of traveling and working, in 1930, Sun House would find himself wandering around in Lola, Mississippi. There, he ran into a famous blues musician by the name of Charlie Patton, who at this time had several records released under the label Paramount Records. Soon after, Patton told the owner of Paramount Records, Arthur Labley, about Sunhouse House and his talent. Labley at the time was seeking out acts like Patton and House to sell as quote-unquote race records. This conversation would eventually lead to the Grafton Sessions in 1930, where both Charlie Patton and Sun House recorded songs one at a time to be sold by Paramount. Two of the songs House recorded at this session, Clarksdale Moan and Mississippi County Farm Blues, would eventually be released by Paramount that year. Ultimately, these records would be a commercial flop, and four years later, Paramount Records filed for bankruptcy. To the musical world, Sun House would still remain unknown, until a chance encounter in 1941. Alan Lomax, who worked for the Library of Congress, was tasked by an African-American professor named John Work from Fisk University to record various Delta Blues musicians. After recording with Muddy Waters, he told Lomax about a friend of his named Sun House. After tracking Downhouse, Lomax recorded two separate sessions with him and a few of his friends in 1941 and 1942. These records were filled with energy, passion, and intense vocals. They reflected the Depression era in the Mississippi Delta and the heavy industrial atmosphere of wartime America. It would be from these recordings that fans of Sun House in the 1960s would find and discover his talent in songwriting. After these two sessions in the 1940s, Sunhouse himself would practically disappear off the face of the earth. For the next 20 years, House's life was defined by constant traveling, odd jobs, and just trying to survive the harsh delta. During this time, he did not touch a guitar once, and ultimately gave up the blues as a lifestyle and interest altogether. In some ways, he was ashamed of his career that never came to be. To the blues world, it was as if Sunhouse never even existed until one fateful day in 1964. Sometime in the early 1960s, three young white men in Massachusetts by the name of Dick Waterman, Phil Spiro, and Nick Pearls were listened to a few strange bootleg blues recordings from the 1940s. These were compilations of recordings that, according to Waterman, were never supposed to be commercially released. After the three did some investigating, they found that these were recorded by a man from Mississippi named Sunhouse. House. The trio then drove through the Mississippi Delta in 1964, and through simply asking around, found out that the man who recorded with Alan Lomax in the 1940s had relocated to Rochester, New York. The next stop for the trio was a small apartment in Rochester, where they would show up at the former preacher, hardened traveler, and former blues guitarist's doorsteps. Waterman describes this first meeting on the liner notes of Sun House's first and only studio album. Three young white men came to 61 Grieg Street in Rochester and ended a search of three weeks and nearly 4,000 miles. They played tapes of House's 1930 recordings and told him that there were once again people who would listen. But could he? And would he? When in June of 1964, Sunhouse found three random, strange, young white men at his door asking him about what he did many decades ago, It is an understatement to say that House was confused, if not outright stunned. Sunhouse had no idea about the cultural boom that was happening with the blues in the 1960s and was completely oblivious to how many people were seeking out his presence. To most people, they thought House was dead. But there he was, living and working in Rochester, New York, having not touched a guitar since his days with Lomax. Dick Waterman in particular was fixated by Sunhouse's presence in songwriting, and soon afterward would be his full-time manager. Waterman's vision was to bring House's groundbreaking songwriting and performance to the rest of America, and the first step would be to put House in front of an audience. Sunhouse would later be extremely thankful to Waterman in his rediscovery, saying in a television special with Buddy Guy that he did in 1968 that, quote, I got scared and quit playing the blues for 16 years until Mr. Dick Waterman found me and gave me the nerve enough to try it again. However, at first, House was very hesitant to jump right back into blues performances. He had not owned a guitar for nearly 20 years, so he had to buy a new one. House ended up with a National Steel Resonator guitar, which would become his main instrument for the following years of his life. And even after he bought a guitar for himself, he had not played the blues in 20 years either. House ended up being retaught by Alan Wilson, a blues guitarist and harmonica player who played in the popular blues band, Canned Heat. Wilson was a massive fan of House, and after two weeks of practicing, Sun House was back to playing like he did with Alan Lomax. According to Waterman, for House, quote, it took a unique kind of personal courage. The old songs started to come back, and, with them, the driving style, the flashing metal slider across the strings, and the voice. The voice. The same low, melancholy anguish flared with spontaneous falsettos. And so, Sun House returned from his self-imposed limbo. By the fall of 1964, Sunhouse was playing at live venues such as colleges and cafes while being managed by Dick Waterman. His audience still did not really know who he was, and did not yet appreciate his musical style. By the winter, House and Waterman started talking to producer John Hammond of Columbia Records, and decided in the spring of 1965 that Hammond would produce one album for Sunhouse. Hammond took great interest in recording with House because he never had the chance to record with Robert Johnson. According to Waterman, the night that they signed the contract with Columbia Records, Sunhouse supposedly raised a drink and gave a toast to his old friend Robert Johnson, declaring, here's to Robert Johnson for being dead. In April of 1965, recording began. Over the span of three days, House recorded 21 tracks total with Hammond, Within the studio, there was a very large audience which eagerly watched House perform and record. House mostly recorded alone this session, performing both his old songs that he played in the 1940s and newer songs that nobody had heard before. Alan Wilson ended up playing on two of the tracks as additional guitar and harmonica. This recording session was cut into an album consisting of nine tracks total under the title The Legendary Sun House, Father of the Folk Blues. This would be House's last time recording music in his studio, but it was not nearly the last time that his impact and presence would be discussed. The album was a hit. In the mid-1960s and even into the 1970s, House performed at large festivals and recorded television specials consistently. Sun House soon became a name of legend within the world of not only the blues, but also folk. He performed with other blues musicians from his own time, such as Mississippi John Hurt, Booker White, or Skip James. But at the same time as the blues' popularity, the folk craze was also happening in the 1960s. Because of House's raw acoustic sound, he was being compared to and praised as much as Bob Dylan or Joni Mitchell. For Sun House, the musical culture of the 1960s was the perfect catalyst for reviving his career as a full-time blues guitarist and performer. Drew audiences, including myself, into Sunhouse's performances were not only his electrifying presentation and vocal intensity, but also his songwriting and the topics he addressed in his songs. Although Sunhouse had just one official studio album in the 1960s, this recording session captured how Sunhouse's songwriting shifted with the culture of the time. Along with the rapidly moving political and musical culture of the 1960s, Sunhouse as a musician, performer, and a person adapted with these times. The songs in this album address the topics of grief, love, his preaching past, his former industrial life, and its reflection on 1960s American culture. Death Letter Blues was, and still is, the song that Sunhouse is most associated with. Not only does Father of the Folk Blues open with this song, but interest in this song was spurred by the White Stripes' cover of the song on their 2000 album, Destyle and in general the band's admiration for House. The song has also been covered by many other blues and garage rock artists both during the 1960s and up to today. The song is in the point of view of a man who has just received a letter that a woman he loved has just died, and describes his actions and thoughts that follow. He travels and attends her funeral, cries while holding a pillow where, quote, she used to lay, says he'll see her again on Judgment Day, and questions why, quote, the good Lord would do something like this. Sunhouse did several different versions of this song, not only during this session, but also live, with only some slight variations in lyrics in each version. This kind of variation in songs like Death Letter Blues shows the adaptability and fluidity in not only House's songwriting, but also how he adapted to the 1960s. In 1930, when House recorded with Alan Lomax and Charlie Patton, he performed a very early version of Death Litter Blues in a two-part song titled My Black Mama. In the first part, House mourns a relationship with a woman that gives him, quote, no satisfaction. However, the second part grants a change in tone to House outright mourning the death of this woman after receiving a letter that she has just died. Like many of the songs House recorded, he was not the original creator of the lyrics or even the title, The first recorded song to have the title Death Letter Blues was sung by Ida Cox in 1924, and several other songs around this era had similar themes of receiving a letter about a death. House directly partook in the blues songwriting tradition of building on and transforming songs for individual expression, and by the 1960s, House changed My Black Mama again. Instead of starting with the strained relationship, House completely shifted the focus to the death letter, He also chose to open the album with this song. Immediately, the listener is thrown into a percussive and intense four minutes of passionate grief, and it sets the tone of loneliness and mourning for the rest of the album. The song and its lyrical content reflect the monotony of House's former life in the Delta, which can be seen from the repetition of the verse, and House's mention of everyday life, such as simply waking up in the morning. The song is one of Sunhouse's most morbid and depressing songs, despite sonically sounding quite jovial and upbeat. The mention of Judgment Day in the song also introduces another trend in House's songwriting, struggling with faith and religion. This leads to another well-known song by Sun House, Preaching Blues. Stylistically, the song is very confessional and satirical in nature. It opens with the line, quote, Yes, I'm gonna get me religion. I'm gonna join the Baptist church. You know, I want to be a Baptist preacher, just so I don't have to work. As well, House points out hypocrisies he sees when he was a preacher, describing deacons as heavy drinkers who have succumbed to, quote, House conveys his struggles with wanting to keep religion in his life while simultaneously wanting desperately to leave. As blues historian Robert Palmer describes it, the song was, quote, unusually personal and vividly describes the tussle between the church and the blue devils for House's soul, a tussle the church kept losing. In two verses that follow each other, House declares, quote, "Farewell, church. May the good Lord bless your soul." And if quote, I'm going to preach these blues, I'm going to choose my seat and sit down. Most likely referring to seats in a church. In this song, Sunhouse conveys a sense of sadness from leaving the church and wishes he could keep some parts of his old preaching lifestyle. In some ways, this song is the culmination of his preaching past and his blues career—a phenomenon that he considered quote, preaching the blues. There are also two much shorter tracks that capture House's preaching past. These two are John the Revelator and Grinning in Your Face, which are performed without guitar in an a cappella style. John the Revelator is a traditional gospel tune that has been covered by many other blues musicians besides House, and Grinning in Your Face was written by House. These tracks in particular bring a sense of loneliness and sorrow to the album, as they consist only of House almost preaching to the listener and occasionally clapping his hands to keep rhythm. Although he pokes fun at the religious culture in which he grew up in with preaching blues, these two gospel tracks show that House was never really the hardened apostate that he truly wished to be. These tracks show House's inability to let go of his religious past, and that he is not ashamed of it during his popularity in the 1960s. Three tracks on the album deal directly with feelings of love for what seem to be three different women, two with names and one without. The songs Pearlene and Louise McGee mention women's names and were possibly former love interests of House. These songs are very different stylistically, however. Louise McGee tells the story of a woman with the same name that he used to love, and is extremely passionate and confessional. At the end of the track, House states that McGee will, quote, forever be on his mind. Pearline, in contrast, has almost no lyrics in the track, with the main chorus simply being Love you, Pearline. House seems to have simply a lack of words to describe his feelings for Pearline compared to his long confession to Louise McGee. This track is extremely slow and intimate, and because of the lack of lyricism and instrumentation, you can hear what appears to be House's heartbeat during the track, most likely because the microphone was right next to his chest to record the guitar and it adds even more intimacy and loneliness to the album. And finally, the track Sundown describes House's feeling of loneliness when he feels, quote, the sun go down. This is very similar, and is almost a second part to Death Letter, as House describes his feelings when the sun sets after receiving the letter. In this track, he even describes the genre in which he performs, declaring the blues as, quote, a worried old hard disease. The songs Empire State Express and Levy Camp Moan are very similar in theme, in that they describe harsh industrial labor and landscapes. Both of these songs as well are the only songs that House did not perform alone, with Alan Wilson joining on second guitar and harmonica. When Waterman and friends first met Sun House for the first time, he was working at a railway station in Rochester, so it is very likely that Empire State Express was his reflection on working at the station. House and Wilson's coordinated guitars almost sound like a train rolling along, and is the most energetic song on the album. Levee Can't Moan is the longest track on the album, clocking in at an incredible 9 minutes and 29 seconds. The song recounts the harsh industrial realities of working on a levee, most likely one of the many levees built on the Mississippi River. House worked industrial jobs a lot of his life, and it's quite possible he worked this kind of job before. This track also ends the album, and in some way represents his final departure from both his industrial past and his life from the Delta. And finally, I will be highlighting a fascinating track that did not make it on the final album. The song is titled simply President Kennedy, and the lyrics mourn the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963. However, the Waltz-style musical structure of the song is the exact same as a song he performed for Alan Lomax in 1942 called American Defense. The song is strange in the context of Sunhouse's lyrics. It's a satirical song that pokes fun at America's war with Japan, where House jokingly encourages citizens to contribute to the war effort and even mentions General Douglas MacArthur by name. However, at the end of the song... Sunhouse grimly declares that, quote, this war will end creation, but that there is, quote, no use in shedding tears and no use in having no fears, as this war may last you for years. House adapted this waltz structure to yet again comment on the grimness of American society, but this time in an even more morbid sense. President Kennedy is not at all satirical or joking in nature, but instead shows House's feelings of sorrow he has for the Kennedy family. It is also possible that President Kennedy resonated with House as a black American, specifically Kennedy's presidential promises to promote equal rights among black and white Americans. The song President Kennedy was not released on the original cut of the album and instead can be listened to on later releases that includes it as a bonus track. The track opens with John Hammond telling House to, quote, take it away, with House first mourning John F. Kennedy's death and calling him, quote, the best friend we had. For the rest of the track, he mourns for the Kennedy family who had to see him die, and ends each verse with, quote, Now I can't much tell; it'll last me for years. His memory still rings in my ears. Not only is House expressing the grief he feels for the Kennedys having lost a family member, but also declaring that the memory of Kennedy himself will live on in House's mind. Sunhouse's song President Kennedy perfectly exemplifies how his songwriting changed and adapted to the turbulent decade of the 1960s. House used a song in which he previously commented on American political culture in the 1940s and rewrote it for the 1960s. However, instead of satire, he changes this song to express his collective sorrow he has with the Kennedy family. I have not been able to find any previous analysis of the President Kennedy song. Daniel Beaumont, House's biographer, provides some analysis of American defense, which he describes as, quote, a wry moment of American patriotism where House composed a waltz time song about the war effort. It is very possible that House was working industrial jobs at this time where he encountered these attitudes, and this song was the result of that. However, with President Kennedy, House most likely heard about the assassination from news sources and wished to express his collective sorrow that the nation was feeling for the president. Son adaptive songwriting that reflected the cultural landscape of the 1960s was what drew audiences into his performance in discography. With this single album and his electrifying performances, he showed his audience that he did not stay in the past at all. Instead, he proved that he was as relevant and able to adapt like songwriters such as Bob Dylan and even his other blues peers. But although his songwriting adapted, he remained unapologetically himself as a former preacher, a blues songwriter, a performer, and an aspiration to many. Songs like President Kennedy show that for blues songwriters like Sunhouse, House, American culture in the 1960s impacted and shifted their songwriting. Blues songwriting did not stay static or simply get absorbed by the greater music culture of the 1960s, but instead remained an integral part of it. House's songwriting was also directly impacted by his lived experiences. His experience as a preacher gave him the confidence and charisma necessary to deal with and perform for an audience. In some ways, the blues replaced preaching in House's life for his emotional expression in public storytelling. As Beaumont states in House's biography, quote, his blues drew upon and gave expression to certain profound conflicts that simmered in the dark recesses of his mind. That was one of the reasons for him taking up music. House thought that, just as a good sermon ought to have a central theme, a blues song should have thematic coherence. House's rediscovery gave him the opportunity to present his unique songwriting, and although this was only conveyed in one studio album, Father of the Folk Blues truly told the story of Sunhouse's life and how his life changed in the 1960s. month after recording Father of the Folk Blues with Columbia Records, Sunhouse toured the West Coast. On May 14, 1965, House found himself in Los Angeles to perform at the UCLA Folk Festival, along with other contemporary acoustic blues musicians. While in LA, House had heard that an old friend of his from the Delta was in town filming a television special with the extremely popular Rolling Stones. Upon finding out, Dick Waterman and House immediately set off to find the studio where this special was being recorded. House greeted his friend with great joy and was thrilled to be reconnected with a fellow musician from his past. The friend that House was so overjoyed to see was almost seven feet tall, had a booming, scratching, harrowing voice, and played the blues with ear screeching guitars that nearly deafened his audience. This man was known to blues fans across America as simply Howlin' Wolf. <laughs>